Hello, everyone, and welcome to In Her Space. I'm your host, Irene Wade. In Her Space is your source of inspiration for faith and spirituality, health, family, love and relationships, professional development, community, and just life. My desire with this podcast is to create a space for me, for you, for us, to share our perspective, to inspire one another, and to give voice to our experiences. My guest on today's podcast is Monika Thomas. Monika is a licensed clinical social worker with over 10 years experience providing individualized family and group-based mental and behavioral health services with children, adolescents, and adults. She uses approaches to therapy that involve understanding the body-mind connection, the impact of childhood attachment, and healing the entire family by restoring healthy interactions. She has served as adjunct professor at Sinclair Community College Department of Social Work and at Central State University. She is also a frequent speaker on topics related to mental health and trauma within the community. Well on her way to doing a powerful work for change in our community, Monika is here to talk to us about the power of parental connection with their children. Monika is also here to talk about a new project that will be revealed later in this show. So right now, I want to introduce to my listening audience the lovely Monika Thomas to the show. Welcome. Monika, could you talk to us a little bit about your practice as a social worker and how you inspire people in the community? Sure. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm excited to be here. Yes. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I was born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. I graduated from Meadowdale High School. Yes. Go Lions. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I decided to major in social work when I went to college. I was deciding on whether or not I wanted to major in education or social work. I knew I wanted to help people. Yes. So someone suggested that I take an introduction to education and an introduction to social work class. Okay. So the social work class really spoke to my interest. It really fit with my personality. It was all about helping and inspiring people and helping them reach their goals. So that's what I decided to major in. So I I got my bachelor's in social work and then my master's in social work from Ohio State. And then here recently, I just became an independently licensed social worker in October. So now... I'm in the process of starting my own private practice. That is phenomenal. Wow. Now, your private practice, what Mm -hmm. are your goals with your private practice, and who are you reaching out to? I've worked in a lot of different social work positions. So I've done foster care. I've done Head Start. I've done teaching in higher ed. And one of the things that I've found is that there's a lot of focus on African-Americans as it relates to how we're impacted in social services, meaning we're some of the biggest consumers of social services. But there isn't a lot of research and information um, related to how to specifically help African-Americans who are struggling with mental health illnesses or the fact that we're at the top of every disparity when you think of social services. So when you think about African-Americans within the foster care system and that African-American boys are sometimes the hardest ones to be adopted in, in the system or the high incarceration rate. So we see all of these disparities, but very rarely do you see targeted interventions that yes. specifically deal with our communities. 
when I started my, my private practice, I was doing a lot of research around attachment and how attachments are so important in the development of children. It impacts you as you grow older. Mm-hmm. Um, it can have to do with the way that you're able to connect with other, other people. It can have to do with the degree to which you become very narcissistic or very selfish when you become older. So with a lot of the research that I was doing around um, attachment, I named my practice Kendrick Connection. Um, it kind of goes along with the mentoring research that says if children have at least one healthy attachment that their life outcomes can be different. Basically, my idea was helping parents know how important their connection is to their children. And just being in the same space is not the same as connecting. Yes. So I wanted to create a, a practice that not only focused on the importance of connection, but what happens to children when they don't have those connections. Mm-hmm. And how can trauma, which is something that's really huge in our community that we don't always discuss, how can trauma have a negative impact on the connections that children need to be successful in life? Wow. So with the practice, it's centering on helping African-American children, uh, youth and families who are impacted by trauma in all the ways that that can manifest. So we look at specifically what I call the brain-body connection. So it's looking at all the ways that if we don't have healthy connections, if we don't have attachment to our primary caregiver, how can those things not only impact our brain development, but then the behaviors that, that follow from that? So that's some of the work that I'm doing. I think that's amazing. And I believe when you talked about the word attachment, you Mm -hmm. know, how can parents really connect with their children on a basic level before Mm -hmm. they come to see you? Yeah, I really try to speak to anybody who's caring for children. And it doesn't always have to be a parent. That's why I like to use the term primary caregiver. So it can be a grandparent who's caring for a child or a father who's caring for a child. Um, But there is a special attachment between a child and their parent. But if a child is not able to have that connection then grandparents, aunts, anyone who is has a vested interest in the development of that child can fill in that gap for the wow. things that that child needs to be successful. So what that would look like in terms of attachment is being present mm. with children and teaching them how to be present with themselves and how to identify how they're feeling and what they're thinking and being able to communicate that in ways that really speak to um, the struggles that they're having. Yes. So it's not them trying to hide how they're feeling or trying to deny how they're feeling is really teaching them how to be in tune with what they're thinking and how they're feeling and then being able to communicate that effectively to other people around them. So another part of that is parents understanding that if a child tells you that they feel a specific way, it's validating that. Because a lot of times if a a child says, well, I'm upset or I'm hungry. No, you're not. You're not hungry. You're not upset. You're just, you know, whatever. (laughs) Instead of um, listening and and kind of bringing it in, sometimes we shut children down. We shut down their emotion. Um, We don't allow them to feel certain things. If they become angry, we don't allow them to show it. Um, If they're talking too loud, sometimes we don't allow them to express it. So what sometimes what our parents find themselves doing sometimes for their own sanity is sometimes they're silencing the voice of their children and then when they don't have that voice they don't know how to be emotionally expressive Mm -hmm. and how to communicate the things that they need so then they start communicating through their behaviors so I always try to encourage parents to parents to look at the behaviors as a way of a child communicating Mm -hmm. if they can't always say I'm hurt or that I'm frustrated Mm -hmm. or that I'm scared Sometimes if you see their anger, that can be a manifestation of all of those 
those feelings um, because we call anger a secondary emotion. It's mm-hmm. not a primary emotion. There's only two primary emotions, which are hope and fear. Wow. And if a child is operating in fear, then all of those behaviors will, will manifest in ways that you see all the, the frustrations that parents have. So um, we try to get parents not to parent out of fear, but to parent out of love. So then they're able to help children reconnect with themselves. And then they're able to connect with how their children feel. Wow. And I mean, and, and that's, that is amazing. I was just having a conversation with a friend and we were talking about a lot of the aggression that mm-hmm. we see with mm-hmm. um, with our children, mm-hmm. you know, in the community and, you know, anywhere that we go. Yeah. So when you talk about that, maybe mm-hmm. not having that connection and not being able to express or them not knowing how to express themselves. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that. Um, aggression that we see it's an offshoot of anger Mm. but one of the things that I try to get kids to understand about anger is that it's not a bad emotion Mm. when you ask the majority of kids do you think anger is bad a lot of them will say yeah that it's bad right because that's how we're conditioned absolutely yeah so I try to get them to understand that anger is an emotion just like any other emotion so just as You would demonstrate your happiness just as you would demonstrate your fear, your excitement, your joy. You can demonstrate your anger as well. And the only reason why we get in trouble for demonstrating our anger is the way that we express it. If we express it in very aggressive ways, aggressive meaning that it's very physical, verbally aggressive, it intimidates other people. So the way in which we express our anger is sometimes what makes children think that anger is a bad emotion. But I always try to normalize it and get them to understand that It's not a good emotion, and it's not a bad emotion. It's just an emotion, just like any other emotion that you have. But giving them the tools to be able to express it. Absolutely. In a way that's that's not self-destructive. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, and that's that's the thing that children have to learn because— Sometimes it's, it's kind of like social conditioning. Sometimes the environment in which they're in, they're learning maladaptive, what we call maladaptive ways of expressing their anger, which is ways that aren't helpful to them, ways that can get them in trouble in school, ways that can get them in trouble with law enforcement. So one of the things that we have to show them is it's okay to be angry. But when you get angry, what are some ways that you can do to express it? And then you also have to ask them, is there something that's underneath your anger that's Mm. driving your anger? Because it is secondary and it's not primary. Mm. So under that anger could be disappointment. It could be jealousy. It could be fear. It could be hurt. Yes, it rejection. Could be a, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of different feelings that's that's underneath the anger. Um, but because those other emotions are really vulnerable, mm-hmm. it kind of goes to a place where you don't like a lot of people to get to. It's easier for you to kind of distance yourself from the more vulnerable emotions and then have the more explosive and expressive anger to kind of push people away. Wow. I, I think that's just great. I'm thinking it's just about folks being educated. Absolutely. A lot of times we do things just because we're not aware of mm-hmm. of an alternative right. way of doing things. Yeah. So can you share with us, you know, you're working in the community. Mm-hmm. What do you want to see as far as the future for our yeah. community and where you want it to go? 
Well, I think the time that we're in now, we're seeing a lot more, at least for me, I'm seeing a lot more people talking about mental illness. I'm seeing a lot of people seeking out services. So I get a lot of calls from parents um, seeking out services for their children, a lot of calls from African-American women between the ages of around 20 and 30 who are just struggling with life, trying to make sense of where they are in the world, what should they be doing with their lives. I hear a lot of them say that, you know, they feel stuck, like their life is just in a standstill, that they're not where they feel they should be for their age. I feel like now, because of what's going on in society, mental health is not, it still has a stigma around it, but I don't know that it's as bad as it was, you know, maybe seven, eight years ago. So what what I would like to see is for people to be more open with what they're struggling with and for our community to create conversations, for people to talk about their mental illness and for it to be normalized as something that anybody can struggle with. And, you know, and even though some of our parents might not have been diagnosed with the mental illness, we still recognized it. Oh, yes. We, we knew when our, you know, our parents <laughs> had an anger issue or when they were drinking too much or when they were taking their aggression out on us or when their mood was fluctuating. Like, we saw all of it. Yes. We might not have known a name for it. But we knew how it impacted us, and we knew what we didn't get because of it in terms of parenting and attachment. So I would just like to see more open conversations, and I would really like to see our community deal with underlying trauma that Mm. that we struggle with, that sometimes we mask and cover up with certain things that we might do for ourselves or to ourselves, some some ways that we might mask it Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, try to put on this resilient cape as if we don't need anyone or need anything. I would just like for us to be more authentic with with where we are and be honest about that and know that it's okay to seek out help. Absolutely. When you talked about having more conversation, what does that look like? I think, well, I know we we talked about in the past about the church. So I always kind of go to the church because, like I said before, a lot of the the women that I see, some of them are are religious. And I think that the church has a really important role to play in starting those conversations. So it would just be allowing women to know if you're having thoughts of suicide, that's not Satan, Mm. that it's not the devil, that you could have some really legitimate Um, concerns about your mental well-being and it's not because you're not a good enough Christian or that you're not strong enough or that your faith is weak. Absolutely. So I feel like we have to make those distinctions between actual mental health concerns and spiritual warfare. Absolutely. So um, that would be one area, you Mm -hmm. know, that I'm thinking that I would like to see in terms of a conversation happen. And then just classes for parenting. So a part of my consulting company, I offer professional development training for counselors and social workers. And then there's also some parent education with that. So that's a part of expanding the conversation is talking about all of those things that we don't typically hear about and understanding trauma. What does trauma look like in children? And what is a developmentally appropriate child who's dealing with trauma? What are some things that they will be doing? What are some ways that they will be acting? So instead of us you know, responding to the behavior and not really thinking about, well, maybe it's some things that they're struggling with underneath. Mm -hmm. I think being more trauma-informed is something that I think can help open the conversation. Right. Would you say it will be beneficial also not just for parents, but anyone who comes in contact with the child, such as teachers and other professionals that that Mm -hmm. come in contact with those children? Absolutely. And especially for teachers, because I hear a lot of parents say that teachers recommended that 
that my child get tested for ADHD. And teachers really don't have the credential or the, the background to be able to say <laughs> if a child needs ADHD medication or right. not. I mean, I understand where that comes from. You know, when you're comparing 20-some children in a classroom and you have three or four who just can't seem to focus and sit still, then your first response is, this is a hyperactive kid. Right. But, again, you have to understand what is this child's environment like? Mm. Um, do they have times where they're able to sit calmly? Do they even know what sitting calmly looks like? Have they ever had that model for them before? Wow. All of those things could look like ADHD, but it, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is. We have to be really careful when we give those types of labels to children because it can always be something else that we might not be able to see. Absolutely. In that case, which could possibly lead to misdiagnosis. Absolutely. Because we're automatically putting that label on the child before mm-hmm. seeing what are the other variables at play. Right. Wow. Absolutely. And you see that a lot with kids who have been in the foster care system. Um, or children who have been, same removed from their homes. So that could look like ADHD, but what they're really dealing with is, you know, a, a trauma wow. where they've been pulled from their home. And if anyone's pulled from their primary environment, that's going to create some disruption. It's going to create disruptions in your mood and your behavior and your thinking. And then that's going to manifest in school. So if, if we don't have all the background information, then sometimes it's easy to think that, Kids just don't know how to act and don't know how to behave, but that's not always the case. Absolutely. Wow. I'm, you know, education is so important and, mm-hmm. and, and just being knowledgeable of what's out there, the tools that, that are available to help us mm-hmm. be better parents, be better mothers, be mm-hmm. better fathers, grandparents, all of that to our children. Absolutely. I think it's great that you're doing this work. Our community needs it. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us more about what you offer and mm-hmm. how can people get in contact with you? I'll just talk a little bit about some of the training that I think is really important that I like for parents to know. So um, when I talked before about the brain-body connection, Mm -hmm. I like to do more education around that for parents. So I like to tell parents that when they think about their child's behavior, not to just look at what their child is doing, but to think about what they could be going through. Mm -hmm. And think about it in three different brain states. So we have our survival brain state, which is where we're just simply surviving. It's very instinctual. It's our fight, flight, or freeze response. Right. And that's kind of like at the base of our brain where we're just, we're acting out of instinct. So I always try to get parents to think about that survival brain. And then when you move one level one level up, you're in the limbic brain, which is kind of in the middle of the brain, which is our emotional center. And that is where um, we have all of our emotions and we're um, anxious when we're worried, when we're crying. Mm-hmm. So if you see a child who's really emotional, then they're operating out of that part of the brain. So that's the limbic brain. Mm-hmm. And then the prefrontal cortex is the front part of the brain, which is where our executive functioning is. And that's kind of like our highest level of thinking. Right. That's where teachers want kids to be when they want them to learn. That's where we are when we're making good decisions, positive decisions, we're making choices, we're thinking clearly, um, we're weighing our options. That's the the frontal part of the brain. And I always try to get parents to think about when you see your child's behavior, think about what brain state are they operating from. Mm -hmm. So if you see a child who's very angry and aggressive, they're probably in that survival brain. So survival brain is where you're thinking, I'm protecting myself from a threat or a perceived threat. And I'm either going to fight the threat if I feel like I can take it on, 
Mm-hmm. I'm going to flee because I think that the threat is too big for me and I can't take it on or I'm going to freeze. So I'm going to get in a frozen state. So when a child is aggressive and is angry, they're in that survival state because they're fighting wow. for their survival um, against the perceived threat. So that's the kind of education um, that I like to try to provide for parents. So I do a training on social emotional learning, which kind of speaks to some of the things that I just talked about. And then I also focus on cultural competency. So I talk about implicit bias in social services. Um, And that means that when you look at the research, African-American children have a higher instance of suspensions, primarily by uh, white teachers. Um, They're more likely to be looked at and viewed in a social setting as the troublemaker or the child that's going to cause the disruption in the classroom. And there's research to support all of this. So it's helping teachers understand how can I not target African-Americans, specifically boys, if I'm working in a school setting or working primarily with African-American children in a social service setting. Um, So that's some of the education. And then my private practice, I'm in the process of getting that started. So it's not done yet. Okay, but (laughs) (laughs) you're getting there. Yeah, I'm getting there. So, but I'm going to have a grand opening for it and everything. Absolutely. Yeah. In the meantime, I just try to provide the education mostly on the social, emotional learning and cultural competence. Oh, wow. So, you know what, that leads us to the great news that we're, (laughs) we're so excited to share. Um, Monika is going to join in her space uh, with her own podcast, the Afrocentric Social Worker Podcast, and it is going to be amazing. And I'm so excited to have you on Mm -hmm. this because, first of all, In Her Space is all about building up individuals Mm -hmm. and being an inspiration and a support to women, to their families, to just people in general. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what is the Afrocentric Social Worker Podcast? Mm-hmm. What is that going to look like? Okay, so I'm super excited about this. <laughs> I'm excited too, sis. <laughs> I have been listening to a lot of podcasts, um, not only when I wanted to go into private practice, but just to strengthen my skills as a clinician and as a social worker. So I started you know, going on iTunes and looking up different podcasters, and I came across some African-American uh, podcasters who really spoke to some things that were specific for our culture, which is what I was interested in. But one of the other things that I saw is when I looked around at some of the very, very popular podcasts, a lot of the interviews weren't coming from our perspective. You didn't hear African-Americans giving their perspective of clinical interventions or things that were working within specific communities or giving their ideas about where they thought the field and the profession was going. So that's kind of what I wanted to do with my podcast. Yes. I was really big into um, the Afrocentricity movement, which started in the 1970s. Okay. Um, and it was really centering the African-American experience. And it was about African-Americans not thinking that we have to be on the peripheral of our experiences, but that we can be center in the conversations and that we can lead conversations as it relates to the spirit, to disparities that we see within our own communities. Absolutely. So it's really about taking agency over our own lives and agency over um, some of the things that we're seeing in our community and us coming up with the solution and the ideas on things that work because we're the ones who are in the community every day. We live in these communities. We go to the grocery store with these children. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. Absolutely. And the majority of us, we're not scared of our, of our children. We, we really want to help them. The Afrocentric social worker podcast is going to be about hearing the stories and the voices of African-Americans and centering on that, centering our need, centering on our need for restoration, centering Mm. on our need for healing and, 
and understanding what does that look like if we use our own philosophies and our own ideologies and things that we've developed and discovered from research that we know that works within our community. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Monika, I am so, so excited about this. I am, this. too. <laughs> and I believe it's going to, you know, we're, we talked about, I was in a circle and we talked about healing and mm. how important that is for yes. our community, especially mm-hmm. in these times. Absolutely. To begin to hear that that is your desire and your goal mm-hmm. is just simply, it's amazing. But mm-hmm. to watch how that's going to bring together other people and, and to bring together um, listeners and, mm-hmm. and those who are in the profession, that is going to mm-hmm. be awesome. It's going to yeah. be awesome. So um, we are excited for those of you who are um, familiar with In Her Space. You know where to go. And so mm-hmm. it's www.inherspace.com. We're going to be posting the information about the launch of the Afrocentric Social Worker Podcast, which is coming in 2018, you mm-hmm. all. So be on the lookout for this. Be on the lookout for more information. It is going to be great. Mm-hmm. Um, before we close out, I always give our guests mm-hmm. on our show final words to our listening audience because we have people that listen in from all walks of life. So, Monika, if you mm-hmm. could give final words to parents who may be, and I know that they're, they are out there, who are having the difficulty with really trying to figure out why is my child acting this way? Mm-hmm. Or maybe just trying to figure out how can I be a better parent? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, could you offer final words to those individuals? Absolutely. So a few things that I would suggest is kind of what I said before. One is be present. Be present with your child. Put your phone down for maybe 15 minutes. Take <laughs> just time. 15 minutes. Yeah, just 15 minutes. 10 if you can, if you can handle that. But <laughs> just, just time. Take time out to put the phone away to, yes. to connect with your child, to be present with them. And when I, when I say be present, I mean kneel down to their level, look them in the eyes, and communicate with them about their day. Yes. And Um, how they're feeling and what they're thinking and really try to engage with them, have that eye contact because that's one of the things that a lot of our our children lack is the ability to kind of be present with Mm -hmm. with another person and that's because they're not seeing that model for them. So um, that would be one thing is to be present. Um, Another thing that I would suggest uh, for parents is to be mindful of your own triggers and Mm -hmm. be mindful of things that you need to do to calm yourself so that you don't project or take your anger and frustrations out on your children. Absolutely. And that is uh, for parents to be in tune with your emotions. Be Mm -hmm. in tune with the triggers that make you angry, that make you frustrated, that make you annoyed, and know what that feels like in your body so that you can catch it before it comes. Right. Um, So those are two things that... That I, that I would suggest for parents. Those are awesome tools that parents can start out with. And I'm just so thankful, Monika, to have you, to Thank have you, you here, um, to have you with In Her Space, um, InHerSpace.com. You're going to hear more about the Afrocentric Social Worker Podcast. Mm-hmm. It is going to be great. Mm-hmm. You're going to hear great things and more information to come. Mm-hmm. So we want to thank you so much for joining us. In Her Space is now available on iTunes. Subscribe today. You can also find In Her Space on, on SoundCloud and Blog Talk Radio. Go to www.inherspace.com and we thank you so much for listening in to us and until next time, be blessed. I've chased, I've chased, I've chased, I've chased.